Well, good morning, Sailorville. It is daylight savings time. It's going to be 60 degrees almost today. It's a beautiful spring day. So thank you for spending the first part of it here at church with us. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Trevor Mears. I'm one of the deacons here at Sailorville. I'm also a seminary student with only three classes left until I graduate this summer. Ah, thank you. You can help with my homework. It'd be great. Um, so we're looking forward to uh, where God might lead us in ministry in the near future. And today it is my privilege to look with you in Matthew chapter 16, if you want to turn there. We're looking at a passage that puts the issue in front of us as directly as pretty much any passage you will find in the New Testament. And in this passage, Jesus is going to ask us the most important question any of us will ever answer. And it starts like this, Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is, meaning himself? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And that question, who do people say I am, comes up, like most of the great questions in our lives do, at least for me, on a road trip. And road trips are something I feel like I'm a personal expert on because I'm from the great state of Nebraska. And it, everybody laughs every time I say that. I don't know why. And if there's one thing everybody knows about Nebraska, it is a long way across. How many of you have had to drive across Nebraska to get to the vacation you really want in Colorado? How many of you did that before there were movies in the cars for the kids? God bless all of you. So when you're on a road trip like that, you are looking for things to talk about to fill the time. And think about the time that Jesus had as they're walking everywhere between these towns on these dusty ancient roads. And in this particular passage that we're going to drop into, this road trip of Matthew 16, they're in a town called Caesarea Philippi, or near it. This is in the far northern part of Israel, probably as far north as Jesus ever went, which means he probably didn't have the huge crowds around him that he normally did. He probably had a little more time to relax, have conversations with his disciples. And the other thing about this town is it was known as a hotbed of pagan idol worship specifically the Roman god named Pan, which if you look in old pictures, he's the guy that's half goat, half man. So as they were walking, you can picture Jesus on this road with the disciples and pagan idols in the fields all around them. And maybe that's what prompted this to be the time. He turned to this question with the ultimate road trip question, who do people say I am? Before we look at how Jesus responds to that answer, let's think about well, what if he asked us? What if he turned to me or you and he said, so what are people out there saying about me? Well, wow, that's a big question. People have been debating that one for 2,000 years. And I would start by saying, well, throughout history, people have tended to treat Jesus like this image on the screen. One of these modern art exhibits where it's a blank canvas, you get to walk up and make it whatever you want it to be. People interpret Jesus in their own way, and there's so many different takes on Jesus flying around. I meet someone who says they follow Jesus, and I say, well, which one? Because people are constantly revising him. People say, well, he was a good man. They say he was a good teacher. He's up there with Gandhi and Buddha. They say he was really a great moral example. And sometimes it's really surprising where you find people recrafting Jesus. When we were back home at Christmas, uh, we were going to go to church with our family, and we thought, well, maybe we'll go take in a concert of Christmas carols at this classic old church in town, huge organ, big choir, all of that. And I thought, well, I'm just curious what they stand for. So I pulled up their doctrinal statement on their website. This is what it said. We are Christian, with quotes around it, which is a bad start when you put air quotes around the word Christian. 
And I did it again. Christian means we perceive in Jesus the divine qualities of love, peace, joy, and justice. It does not mean we think Jesus is the only path to God. I don't know what's really left of Christian once you say that, but I do know we decided we wouldn't even go to the concert at that place. So if Jesus said, well, what's the common thread here? When people are defining me, what do we see over and over again? I tell them this. I think the common theme, especially over the last couple hundred years in our modern era, is that when people redraw Jesus, it's always about people changing Jesus to fit themselves rather than them following what he wants them to be. Nobody paints a Jesus that makes me more convicted about my own sin. I tend to redraw Jesus' sin to someone who says, my sins are the ones that are pretty cool with him. It's your sins that need to change. And anytime we start redefining Jesus outside of what we see in the Bible, we're doing what one writer said is like you look down a deep well and you see your own face reflected back at you. And here's the truth. A savior that looks like me isn't gonna save me. All we have to do is ask somebody, how's it working out for you to solve your own problems so far? It's not gonna work in this life or in eternity. Well, let's get back to this road trip. So Jesus and his disciples, he asked them, who do people say the son of man is? As we saw, they said, well, some say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So what was clear is Jesus, they saw something powerful about him. His words and his deeds reminded them of what they had seen in the prophets and the ancient scriptures of Israel. But when I read about these people who say they thought he was a prophet, but weren't following him, it makes me think of, well, coffee. Bear with me. It's a short trip for me to think about coffee. It's always right there. Uh, I have been sometimes called a coffee snob because I will say things like, life is too short to drink bad coffee. And I have opinions about coffee. I don't want it so thin I can see the bottom of the cup. Anyone with me on this? And when you start talking like that, other coffee snobs start coming up to you and they ask questions like, well, what temperature of water do you prefer to make your coffee? Or they say, how do you store the beans to preserve the essence of the oils? And usually I say, you know, I don't have time to worry about that kind of stuff. And they say, oh, I thought you said you liked coffee. And I say, well, I like coffee, but not enough to reorder my life around it. Uh-oh, see where I'm going? These people were saying, we believe Jesus is a prophet, but they weren't ready to actually do what he said. And that goes for people today, too. If you say that you believe that Jesus, what he taught, well, then how, if you don't believe, if you don't follow what he taught, how do you consider him a great prophet? If you don't believe what he taught, how do you even call him a great teacher? That makes no sense. If you don't believe what he taught, how do you even call him a good man? Because Jesus claimed to be the son of God. He said he could forgive sin. If you think he was lying about that giant piece of the puzzle, why would you believe anything else he said? Jesus did not ask us to merely take good advice from him. He asked us to give our lives over to him. And we prove that we believe him when we reshape our life around him. Let's turn now to the heart of this message. We got it out of our system, okay? We've shaken our head at all the stuff people are saying out there about Jesus and how many bad ideas there are. Because in verse 15, we see Jesus turn this question on the disciples. He said to them, who do you say that I am? And as soon as he makes this more pointed conversation, we see four main moments that we're going to look at. The first one is called the realization. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do people, or who do you say I am? Well, who else but Peter would speak up? It's always Peter that goes first. And in this case, 
Peter's thoughts in verse 16, there are a magnificent confession. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There it is. Think what that felt like when it came out of Peter's mouth that first time. Think about how you think something, but it doesn't feel real until you say it. Think about the first time you called your family and said, we're going to have a baby. And all of a sudden it hits you, we're going to have a baby. When you go in and you tell your boss, I quit. And then you think, was that a good idea? It seemed like a good idea. So think what it felt like when Peter said, I just said it. I just said this teacher I'm following is actually the son of God. And when Peter declared that, commentators say he became the first Christian in history for recognizing exactly who Jesus was. And with that confession, Peter made this quantum leap in understanding. And he shows us an important truth. There's always more to know about Jesus than what you already know. Peter thought he understood Jesus, and then he found a whole new level of who he actually was. And there is always another level we can learn. This is where Pastor Pat started this series back in December. He said, we have a bigger Jesus than we think. Never let yourself get tired of learning new things about him. Never let yourself think you've got him all figured out. The apostle John closed his gospel by saying, I suppose if I wrote down everything he did and said the world could not contain all the books. Picture yourself in a room like this library. This is what there is to know about Jesus. And so many Christians, we walk in, we take the first book off the shelf, we read the note on the back and put it back and say, I'm good. I understand him now. And that is not what we are to do. Go all the way in. Make knowing Jesus your life's work. In our passage, Peter made this leap in his understanding. And how did he get there? Well, verse 17 shows us. Jesus answered him. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter didn't figure this out on his own. God revealed it to him. Peter didn't sit down and sketch out his own personal vision of Jesus. This is not a religion that one philosopher dreamed up someday. The gospel of Jesus is written by God, and it's revealed to us. And how did Peter get himself to that spot where that revelation could come to him? Well, he followed Jesus. Jesus came to him. He called him away from fishing. Peter left everything behind, and he walked with Jesus to get to know him better. And as he walked alongside him day and week and month after month, God opened Peter's mind to the greatest realization. A human mind can start to wrap itself around. It is amazing how many people think they can be a passionate follower of Jesus without spending time getting to know him. But I agree with a Bible author named Jen Wilkins says this all the time. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Study him and you will come to love him more. Look at where this conversation happened. We already said it. It's a long walk with Jesus. We have to go walking alongside him. The longer we walk alongside him through Bible study and prayer and fellowship with other believers and stepping out in faith to see his work in our life, the more we'll get to know him. And if we approach him with an open mind, we will see amazing things. There's never been anyone like him. The woman at the well, she met Jesus. She ran back to her village. She said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. The soldier watched him die on the cross and he turned to the others. He said, surely that man was the son of God. Walk alongside Jesus. You'll see what Peter did. You'll see what the woman at the well did. You'll see what the soldier did. 
The next key moment in this exchange has to do with the rock. These words were out of Peter's mouth. He confessed Jesus. And here's what Jesus continued to say in response to that. Verse 18. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So this passage, there have been centuries of misunderstanding around this. So let's be clear. What is the rock that the church is built upon? It's not Peter himself. It's Peter's confession of who Christ is. When Jesus called Peter, he gave him a new name. He called him the rock. So Jesus is engaging in wordplay here. He's saying, you are a rock, and I will build the church on the rock, which is myself, the confession. And if we want proof of this, you know who didn't think Peter was the founder or the foundation of the church? Peter. Let's look at what he wrote later in his life. 1 Peter 2, 5 through 6. Peter wrote, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter is saying that all believers are like little stones that are stacked on the big stone that is Jesus Christ. That is the same thing we have to recognize as what Peter realized on the road. And Jesus makes this promise. As long as the church stands on that foundation, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That expression comes from ancient cities and warfare. The town leaders and the armies would gather at the gate of the city. They would make their strategy and the army would march out through that gate to go do war. So picture the invasion force of hell here. And I read about that and I've got a big inner nerd, and my nerd comes out, and I think about the Lord of the Rings. Remember this scene where 10,000 monsters gather outside this castle intent on wiping humanity off the map? This is what I picture. The gates of hell, the armies line up outside the church, and Jesus says, they are not coming in as long as you confess me as the Christ. But if the church ever abandons that foundation, If we abandon that confession of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the guarantee is off. And we have to be clear on this. Jesus' promise that hell won't prevail against the church doesn't mean any given church might not fail. And we have to be clear on this too. A church closing its doors is not the only sign that hell prevailed against it. You can draw thousands of people to your church, but if you're not preaching the gospel of Christ, you are not carrying the word out into the world that needs it. Until about the year 1400, there were no compasses on ships. They hadn't figured out the right technology yet. So when sailors went to sea, they would never let land out of their sight because they knew if they went out to sea and lost sight of it, they would never find their way back home. Our shoreline that we have to keep in our sights is this confession of Christ and sharing the gospel with people because a church can be loaded with well-meaning programs. You can have great worship music that everybody likes to hear. You can have a kids program everybody wants to come to. 
You can have classes that are really helpful that teach about personal finance. You can have a ministry that gets food and clothing to the needy, and those are all fantastic. But you can have all of that, and one day you wake up and say, I can't even see the shore of the gospel anymore in what we're doing. We're not telling people about Jesus as we do it. And that is when we have to race back. We have to put our feet back on this rock that is the foundation, that is our guarantee. There's a, a lot of you are familiar with the Marine Corps' motto, Semper Fi. This is the only Latin most of us know. Always faithful. There was an expression used during the Protestant Reformation, Semper Reformata, always reforming. And the reformers said that because they know it's a constant process. In our own personal lives and in our church, we want to drift and we start to lose focus. And that's when we have to grab the wheel and turn it back to the foundation that is Christ. That is the rock that Sailorville Church stands on. That is what has made this church what it is. It is the rock Sailorville has to continue to stand on if it's going to carry the gospel into a dying world. Now, we're talking about evangelism. So in relation to that, verse 20 can be a little confusing. It says, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why would he do that? Partly, they didn't have it all figured out yet. We're about to see that, that they still had some things to learn about Jesus. But I think what also goes with that is, what is the greatest proof you can have that Jesus was telling the truth about who he was? His resurrection. And that hasn't happened yet. So I think Jesus was saying, just hold on. The best part of that story hasn't even happened yet. Easter's coming. Because once that happened and he appeared to people and he proved that he had risen from the dead, then we get to Matthew chapter 28 and the Great Commission. He says, now go tell everybody. You've got the full story. And that is what he tells us to do. One other thing that's in here in this passage, he tells Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What he's referring there to is what we see in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, Simon preaches, Simon Peter preaches the first Christian sermon at Pentecost. He's opening the kingdom of heaven by sharing the gospel. We see it happen again in Acts chapter 10. He shares the gospel with the Gentiles. Peter is opening the kingdom by preaching the kingdom of Christ to everyone. Now we talked about this quantum leap Peter's made in his understanding but he didn't quite see the whole picture yet. That brings us to the third part of the story, the rebuke. Verses 21 and 22. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside. He began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When Peter hears Jesus say, I'm going to go suffer and die, he's outraged. He's so shocked. He didn't even hear the part where Jesus said, I will rise again. All he heard is, you're going to go die. And Peter said, not you. You're the Messiah. The Messiah's job is to come here and free us from all this oppression that we're facing. You cannot even talk about potentially dying. Peter was probably feeling pretty confident right now. Who wouldn't? Just a minute ago, Jesus has said, blessed are you. You figured it out, and God is revealing things to you. So Peter's probably thinking, God's revealing this to me too. I'm going to tell him he shouldn't go to Jerusalem and die. He's pressing in because he's Peter. But Peter, what he was saying was that Jesus was not living up to Peter's definition of what the Messiah should be. 
He genuinely wanted to follow Jesus, but he wanted to follow his version of Jesus. And Jesus had none of that. In verse 23, he jumps all over the misguided viewpoint. And did Peter just go from being called blessed by God to being called Satan? Well, not exactly. Because in this condemnation, when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, he's looking past Peter and he sees Satan behind that lie because he's seen this one before and he knows the source of that. This is very similar to the line that Satan took in the temptation of Christ. He told Jesus, you do not have to go through with this painful plan that God has laid out. I'll make you king of the world right now. Take the shortcut. This is the same lie that Satan brought to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He said, you, you don't have to go through God's plan. I'll give you the power you deserve right now. Take the shortcut and follow me. So Satan knew where this was coming from. And he knew that Peter had it mostly right. But the part he was wrong would destroy everything if Jesus didn't correct it. If Jesus listened to Peter and avoided the cross, he wouldn't save any of us. The Jesus that we define is not the Jesus we need. Don't miss what Jesus is saying here to Peter. Editing Jesus into what we want is an attempt to get in the way of the plan of an all-powerful God. And as a deadly mistake. Which brings us to the last moment in this story. Your response. We don't get to just observe this exchange on the road. If we're just watching it, we're still just saying what other people say. We're saying, well, that's what the disciples said. But sooner or later, Jesus turns to every one of us and he says, who do you say I am? He tells us that we're all going to answer that question one day. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus describes the day of judgment like this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what will your answer be? When he looks at you and says, who do you say I am? Some people will start to say, well, the church I attended always said this, or my family that I grew up in, always said this, or, and Jesus is going to stop, he said, I'm not asking you what other people say anymore. I'm asking you, who do you say that I am? And we won't dodge the question, because this is not the gentle teaching Jesus in that passage. This is Jesus the judge. This is Jesus who stands and winnows the real believers from the pretend believers. The last couple of sermons go back, they were about parables, about this exact thing of showing the wheat and the tares, the seeds that actually grow and those that don't. Jesus is going to say, I told you who I was, and you didn't listen. You chose to define me however you wanted, and a lot of you decided that meant I wasn't even worth thinking about. And here's the part that should make all of us examine our hearts. When you read that passage, it shows on Judgment Day, it won't just be atheists that God is kicking out. It is going to be people who say, didn't we do things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Pretend followers will be revealed. And that should send all of us, you hear that, I'm sure it's doing it right now, that sends you to your knees in self-examination to say, how do I know if I'm one of the true ones? And I always think about the passage in Luke 18 where Jesus talks about a religious leader and a tax collector. 
And the religious leader is doing all the religious things. He's tithing, he's going to church, but he's doing it all so people notice him and he can be judged by his works. And in that story, Jesus looks at the tax collector and the tax collector says, be merciful to me, God, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man will go home justified because he recognizes he is casting himself on the mercy of God. The day of judgment is going to be a tragedy for so many people. And maybe they got a lot right about Jesus, but the parts they're getting wrong are fatal. So we have to be totally clear in what the gospel says. And it's simple. We're all sinners. We are all separated from God. And the only path back to God is through Jesus, who came down, took on our sin, died on the cross, rose again, and has opened the door that we can get back to God. Nothing you do can save you except trusting in him. Is that where your faith is? And don't think it's too late for you. Don't think I've lived such a horrible life, God will never let me back in. I think that's another reason Peter is such a great character in the Bible. Look at what happens after this conversation. Jesus condemned Peter for getting it wrong about who the Savior was or what he had to go do, but he didn't reject Peter and get rid of him. He kept teaching him. He guided him. Then he went and he died for him. And he was showing Peter the kind of savior you need is one who will die for you. That's the whole point of me being here. That is the real Jesus he wanted Peter to see. And that's the same Jesus who died for all of us is making that path back to God. As we come to the end of the passage, we have to remember things in the Bible are put in an order for a reason. And there's a passage here, it's structured the same way in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So they're all putting it in this order. There must be something we're supposed to see here. So let's go to verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus had made clear in this passage, now that you know who I am, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, and I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. So what I'm going to do is go to Jerusalem, die, and rise again. What you're going to do is take up your cross and follow me. I think Christians, we have muddied the message a lot over the years. Um, We use the phrase all the time, ask Jesus into your heart. And what that can do is it can fool us a little bit into thinking that this is just a sort of a magic prayer we ask and Jesus comes to us. But to become a Christian is far more than that. You are saved simply by trusting in him. But to follow Christ with your entire life, that means to repent and change the direction of your life, to become a true follower. Asking Jesus into your heart is transactional. But giving your entire life to him is transformational. Jesus uses the language of dying to yourself here. He's saying, take up your cross, give up your life. And if you truly begin to follow Christ, your old life, it ought to be disrupted. So many American Christians, they think it's great. I'm just going to add Jesus to the portfolio of my life that I already have. He'll slide in right alongside everything else that nothing else is going to have to change. But I think more accurate would be what one author named Rosaria Butterfield, she talked about being saved out of a profoundly unbiblical lifestyle. And she said, my salvation was not this gentle conversion. It was a collision because my life was going to have to change if I'm going to be a follower of Christ. If your words are saying that you know who Jesus is, why do your actions show something else? 
We profess our faith with our words. We prove it with our actions. Picture yourself again on that road trip. You're walking with Jesus. You're on the dusty road. You're cutting through fields of pagan idols. And the question is, if you know who Jesus is, why are you wandering off into the idol field again? Why are you still over there worshiping at the idol of money like all your unsaved coworkers? If you know who Jesus is, why are you standing under the idol of envy over everybody else's second home or vacation or whatever it is that you wish you had? If you know who Jesus is, why are you so busy walking around among the idols you don't have time to study the Bible, you don't have time to pray, you don't have time to fellowship with other believers? If you know who Jesus is, why are you putting your hope in political leaders instead of the hope of Christ? And if you know who Jesus is, why are you still gossiping about people? Why are you still ignoring the needs that are evident all around you? Three times in John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, get on the road beside me and quit wandering around out there in the world. I'm not talking about living out of guilty obedience. That's not at all what it's about. Look at what Jesus actually says here in Matthew 16. In exchange for this apparent sacrifice of giving up my life, he's making us a tremendous promise. Give up that old dead life because I'm gonna show you a life that the whole lost world is searching for among all the lies of the idols that they're chasing. This world deceives us into thinking material things are something I have to grasp, something I have to hang on to, but it's a lie. And to help me remember what a lie that is, I hung a banner in my office. More accurately, my wife bought it for me because she knows these idols like to pull me off the road. This is from a missionary named Jim Elliott. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What are you giving up? You're giving up a dead way of life. One of the reasons I like to go to gospel-centered recovery here at Sailorville Church is because it gives me a chance to be around some of the most joyful people I know. People who have been saved out of a life of addiction. Their joy overflows because they see complete clarity that the life they left behind was nothing. There was no sacrifice there to follow Christ. They left behind a bondage that was destroying their lives. And maybe your bondage isn't drugs or alcohol. But truly following Jesus, it frees us from whatever is enslaving us. It can free us from the greed, free us from the envy, can free us from bitterness. He can free us from regret. Do I still battle some of those things in my life? Sure. But now with the Holy Spirit, it's with the Holy Spirit telling me, you know, if you would just give these things up to me, your life's going to be better. Hand it over to me and follow Christ. Lives given over to Jesus are full of amazing things, and people notice. A few months ago, one of our church members named Brad led a friend of his to Christ, and he baptized him in the baptistry right here. And in case you missed it, or in case you need a reminder, I'm going to show you a short clip from Paul Booth's baptism from last fall. It wasn't until I moved to Des Moines, Iowa, my family and I, my beautiful wife and children, uh, about six years ago, when we moved into uh, a cul-de-sac with amazing neighbors, and I had no idea six years ago that these neighbors were going to change my life. And they're here today. Uh, the Bannings, Eric and Jackie Banning, are here th this morning, and the Millards are here this morning. And my main man, Brad, is right here next to me. Because one day, uh, I saw the fire in Brad's heart and in his eyes, and I, I wanted that. And so I went one day when Brad and I were working out, I said, Brad, I 
I'm missing what you have, and I want it. And I, I feel something tugging at my heart, and I wonder if you could help me. He says, Paul, I'll tell you what, let's, let's meet for coffee with Pastor Pat, and we'll, we'll talk about this. And that, uh, that's, that Friday morning, April 9th, 2021, I fell in love with the Lord. A testimony has stuck in my mind ever since I heard it. He said, I'm missing what you have, and I want it. Who looks at my life and says that? Who looks at your life and says that? Are you living in such a way that people see something different and they want to know where it's coming from? So today, for all of you, if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, Jesus is asking you, who do you say that I am? And if you're not sure, there are dozens of people here who want to sit down with you and show you from Scripture, not my own definition of who he is, the definition in the Bible of who Christ is. And for all of us who claim to be Christians, where are you walking? Are you on that road? Are you walking alongside Christ? Or are you out there wandering around among the false gods of our culture? Are you living in such a way that Jesus comes to you and he says, my child, by the way you live and the way you set your priorities, I can tell you know exactly who I am. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for this vivid story you gave us, just the humanity of men walking with Christ on the road and having a conversation. And we thank you for the, the clear insight that you gave them to understand who Jesus Christ is. And now it's all written down for us and more to get a full look at what he's done for us. And we thank you for that. I pray that if there's anyone here today who's still not sure what they think about Jesus, that they'll talk with someone they came with, they'll talk with one of us, Look into your word and understand he came to save us and we have to confess that. And for us Christians, help us to just look at our lives and say, am I proven that? I know I'm saved by faith and now I need to guide my entire life to honor Christ and keep his commandments. Help us to see into our hearts, show us where we can be more like you and show how much we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.